At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. The last word on Today FM with Matt Cooper. Hello and you're very welcome to a special edition of The Last Word where we look back at some of our favourite interviews from throughout the year. And today's show is a sports special and we're kicking off the chat with the podcaster, Irish Times columnist and now author, Kieran Murphy. He released his memoir, This Is The Life, Days and Nights in the GAA. And when we met him, he began by explaining the inspiration behind writing his first book. I suppose the the idea behind the book was to try and tell the story of the GA through my own personal experience. And so my personal experiences are maybe not as commonplace as in that I've played for three clubs. But I have a club at home in, uh, in Milltown in County Galway that I grew up playing with and uh, played senior football with. And then I've, but I have a club up in Dublin as well, Temple Oak Sing Street. And I had a brief dalliance with Vince's, Vince's as well on the north side. So uh, it's not an entirely common uh, life story, but it is increasingly common for a lot of people, particularly from the Western Seaboard, I think, who um, have done the up and down every weekend to play and train with your home club. And then maybe at 35, which is the age I was when I joined Temple Oak Sing Street, that, OK, we have to put a stop to this and uh, try and get back to to some sort of work-life relationship balance. And what age is it you are now and you're still playing? Because I laughed recently reading your Irish Times column about suddenly being given the job that you'd never been given before playing in goal. Yeah, so uh, I've, I'm 41 since July. So in June, I ended up playing three games in five days for three different teams with Temple Oaks Sing Street. So I played uh, full forward for the thirds on a Tuesday night, a beautiful Tuesday night in Donabate against St. Pat's. And then on the Wednesday our senior manager had the bright idea to try and play me in goal. So I've been a free taker for my entire career. He had this bright idea that oh, if you take frees, you're probably you've kind of got the temperament, which then the temperament is fine. And also the accuracy to be able to pick out players well, at a good distance. Yeah, there's a bit of that going on as well. So we beat Whitehall Cullum Kills in the senior league on Wednesday and then I played for the Temple Oak Sing Street Intermediates, the second team, on Saturday. So, I mean, when I was 19... I didn't play three games in five days, but now when you're turning into your forties, how is the body held up to that? Well, at nineteen, you'd be concerned about burnout. Whereas at forty, you're like, every day is a privilege, Matt. So you know, yeah, by the time Saturday came, I was tired, but I mean, I'm no more tired than usual. Okay, maybe when you get to forty, a lot of lads are playing five-a-side football or something yeah. like that, rather than getting involved in competitive games with young fellas ten and twenty years younger than you. Yeah. But I think having read the book, I have a better understanding as to why it is you continued to actually do so, because in some respects, you've almost known nothing else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've uh, I've played football since, you know, basically the length of our back garden in Milton was about 30 yards. So from when I was seven or eight, I could kick the ball the length of the backyard. Yeah, but were you really practising with your other foot in the way that all kids are told practice to be two-footed? Were you really taking that on or are you exaggerating See, that now the, a little bit? The thing is, Matt, unfortunately, my coach was also my dad. So usually you can do you can you can get away without practicing when your coach isn't literally staring out the kitchen window looking at you all the time. So no, I mean that that was just the reality of it. Like where I grew up. Uh, in Milltown, it's northeast Galway, so there's no hurling, 
and back then there was no soccer, no football, no um, rugby. It is a monotheistic society, and that uh, religion does is is not selling it short. I mean, Galway have won nine All Irelands. It's the third most after Kerry in Dublin. The vast majority of footballers on those teams have the the vast majority have come from that area around Tume. Tume is kind of the centre of f- football in in Galway. So there's a very strong argument to be had that that r- rural area that I grew up in is the it's the most metal laden. 15 square miles or 30 square miles of rural Ireland outside of the county of Kerry. I'm trying to paint a picture of just how important football was to me growing up, but also just to my community and the communities around Milton. It really was the only show in town. So it's not an exaggeration to say that's literally what I was doing because I know for a fact that I had 11 other boys in my in my class and most of them were doing the same thing. But I loved as well, I mean, there's a wonderful portrait of your father whose involvement mm. across the local club, getting involved, Galway County Board, having the notebook with all of the birth dates, which yeah. is so important to get the birth dates right to put the people into the right teams and the rest yeah. of it. But I also love the way that you said, like your mother was as fanatical as well. Yeah. Because he wouldn't have been able to do it without have been negligent unless she was encouraging him to oh, do it. absolutely. Yeah, so my dad was uh, manager of the under 12s, under 14s, under 16s and under 18s teams in Milltown. There was probably like a a spell of about 12 or 13 years where he was in charge of basically all of them. And he couldn't help himself. You know, he he's actually from Unchanifobal in uh, Waterford, so he's a Gwailgore. So uh, he uh, met my mum up here in Dublin. They had two kids down here. Then they moved down to Milltown in 1980 and had two more kids down there. So uh, he was a blow-in to the parish. Uh, and he just went to the AGM at the end of the first year that he lived in the in Milltown and just said, can I help out? And uh, that's music to any GA committee member's ears. Of course he can help <laughs> you out. You will be taken advantage of yeah, if you say, yeah, can yeah. I help? Well, taking advantage of is, uh, is, uh, is, that's not a charitable way to put it because he loved it from the first minute he got no, involved. No, that's fair enough. And, uh, because and, as you write, it was part of, it was a sense of community because as you also write about when the season was finished, he got you involved as well in all sorts of things like quizzes yeah, yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. So this, the score and a no, score competitions, like I think they began in like the early 1970s. The, the GA basically had this thing that over the winter you should be also be you know indulging your love of Irish culture. So there's there was like eight categories in score and score and og, and that was like set dancing, instrumental music, solo singing, etc. Et One of those was the throne against. So the second the football was over, Dad was like, right, come on, we'll give this a rattle as well. And it turned out that you know he was brilliant at that as well, and we 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 had a bit of success at that as well. But that was it. I mean, I think really like we often ask ourselves. I have three older brothers. And we, you know, have asked ourselves in the past, like, just, like, where did it come from? Like, what exactly was the motivation for Dad to get involved to the extent that he that he did? And really, the the motivation, I think, was just, like, a real belief in young people and a belief that if they grew up loving something in their community, that they'd continue to love that community even after they they had left, you know? Um, so anytime I meet people like the, the, that kind of would have passed through the Tony Murphy Academy, if we can call it that. Uh, they just speak so fondly of him and so warmly of him um, that it's like, I couldn't think of a more kind of beautiful, uh, uh, a more beautiful thing to hear about your dad. You Does know? that mean when you stop playing, 
that you will be a coach and a mentor for your own children oh. and their friends and that you'll get involved in community in Dublin in the same way. Well, see, this is this is the thing. Um, see, while you're still playing, of course, you look down your nose at the idea of like being a committee member or being a manager or whatever. But there are a couple of lads of roughly my vintage who are still playing with me on the team that I'm playing on at the moment who are in charge of the Temple Oak Sing Street minor team and they're kind of... You know, dropping a few hints here and there, Monday evenings, half. So you don't even have to come down, you don't have to put the boots on, you don't have to do any work. See, this is how it starts, Matt, obviously, you know. You come down for a look do one evening. Do you not feel duty-bound that this oh. is part of your destiny, your birthright almost? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely will. It's funny, it's kind of uh, the last couple of weeks. I, this has literally only been happening in the last couple of weeks and I've kind of felt like, oh God, John, kind of just running around a small bit at the moment. But I think 2024 is definitely the year that I take the step into take the step into management, you know. But that's it. Like, there's a big question there because, you know, I, I like, I don't have kids so I don't have, like, that uh, that automatic nearly move into mm. the under sevens or under eights or under nines. So you kind of actually have to make a decision, you know. Do you, is it, like, do you want to get involved in committees and becoming a club chairman? And that's a really, that is a high-pressure job, particularly in clubs in Dublin where the fight for pitches and funding and everything is just, it's, you know, you got to fight tooth and nail for all that stuff. Or do you actually just want to have that thing that, that dad got such joy out of? You know, just seeing a young kid that couldn't do something in January, pulling it out of the bag in October in a county semi-final or something, and just on that was nine years, nine months ago, you couldn't do that. And and today, when it mattered, you did it. Something so that's a, you know, that's, that, that's a, uh, a seductive thing, really, a lot of ways, isn't it? See, something else that struck me in reading the book is... In the early stages, there's hardly a mention of hurling. Yeah. Because where you live is all football. Yeah. And you even mentioned that when the football season's over, to keep you active, you're involved in quizzes and all sorts yeah. of other types. But, but not hurling. Yeah. So there's a lot of us grew up playing both football and hurling. Yeah. Playing it badly, but playing both of those sports. Yeah, yeah. So do you ever feel that you missed out by not actually picking up a hurl? Oh, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you a funny story, actually, Matt. I have only played one game, one half of hurling in my entire life. Now, funny enough, my dad was from Waterford, so we had hurlies in the backyard yeah. all the time. So we actually played a good bit of hurling, just not organised hurling. The only game of hurling that I played in my life was uh, a media selection against the Crow Park employee. You know where this is going. <laughs> so I have played I have played one half of hurling, but that half of hurling was in Crow Park. <laughs> so I got a ball about 45 yards. And you know this kind of thing, it's like if I was playing centre forward for the footballers, you could just stay, stay there for the hurling, for the hurling half. So we played a half in hurling and a half in football. So I got the ball about 45 yards out into the Davin stand, a little bit of room, take a look at the pulse. I mean, it's now or never, you know. The thing goes about a foot wide and I'm like, that's it. That's literally the only chance I'll ever get to A, score a point in hurling and B, definitely score a point in hurling in Crow Park. So that's it. But I mean, I, I see Galway is a really strange county because basically north of the railway line. So if you're going, travelling from Dublin to Galway on the railway, everything on your left, if you're facing Galway, is hurling country and everything on your right is football. So to the south of the railway line, that's all hurling. So there's actually even very few dual clubs in yeah. Galway, really. Um, so that and there's no real reason for that. I mean, it's proximity to the to where hurling kind of first began in Tipperary and Limerick and Clare and those places. So we there were there are, there's like a couple of pockets of hurling in northeast Galway, but like yeah, that's it. It's it's and it's a. It is a slight on the association in a lot of ways. Yeah, but something else, and just to come towards the finish of this, that did strike me as interesting as well. We've had a lot of debate recently about the split season mm. and putting the All-Ireland finals earlier in the year, the Intercounty Championships yeah. finishing earlier, which 
I'm one of those who thinks it's a great shame. I used to love the yeah. finals in September, the sort of the start of the autumn, the kids going back to school, all that sort of stuff. But reading your book, I got a much better appreciation and bringing me back to my own club days mm. many years ago now back in Cork about the importance of club, loving the guys going and playing for the county and how important it was to support the county as well, but the importance of giving time to the club for their own competitions. Absolutely. And you know, I, 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 one final thing I would say about it, right? Last, say in the last, say the middle two weeks of August, people would say, oh, well, you know, the GA have handed over that, the, the PR element of it to soccer and rugby and all the rest. Nearly every single club in every single county in Ireland had their club team playing a vital game in the middle of August in perfect conditions. That is really important. That's genuinely massively important. I mean, the like it doesn't get any better than that. Like that for me is the best GA weekend of the year. Those weekends when every single club is out in hurling and football. Dreaming of winning the county championship or whatever grade it might be, senior, intermediate, junior or whatever. Every dream was alive the second Sunday in August. And I absolutely appreciate that you you know there's the national papers aren't going to be covering every single club game but that kind the, instead of it being a mile wide and an inch thick as i've said it's an inch wide but it's a mile deep that emotional uh, investment that emotional involvement that people have in you know uh the Iliad was made from such a local row you know and all these local rows happening uh, around the country that's important too Murph, Kieran Murphy there, author of This Is The Life, Days and Nights in the GAA. He joined us in the studio in September to discuss the release of his memoir. But stay with us because we'll be revisiting our chat with Ema Ryan after the break. The Last Word on Today FM with Matt Cooper. Welcome back to The Last Word where we're looking at some of the standout sports interviews from the year. And we're going now to the winner of the Unpost Sports Book of the Year, Ema Ryan. She released the, gla- the Grass Ceiling earlier this year, documenting her experience as a woman in sport and how it helped improve her confidence from a young age. Yeah, I suppose um, being a woman in society, you know, so often you're you're focused on making yourself small and unnoticeable and, you know, uh, taking up less space, I suppose. And sport is kind of where you get to flip that narrative and be aggressive and and stand in people's way and and move towards danger and move towards um, physical hurt even, you know, where I think a lot lot of times in ordinary life, you kind of spend your time avoiding that kind of thing, even just as as a woman in public space. So I think sport is, is, is a fantastic antidote to that. I have to admit, I'm sort of shocked to hear you say the first bit about sort of stepping back. I mean, is that, do you think, the way that most women feel? I think so, yeah, and, and it it is kind of normalized in a way, you know. Um, if you're if you're walking home as a woman, you kind of, if you see a, a a group of lads outside a pub, you kind of skirt around them. You know, they're probably fine, but you, you skirt around them just in case. Um, you know, people people often joke about women going to the 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 toilet uh, in groups, but you know that's just another thing that women do for safety. Um, and so I think a lot of those strategies that women kind of practice I suppose in in public space you get to kind of set aside when you're out on on the field and you get to kind of be 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 a force be powerful um and it feels it feels really good and that was important to you I think wasn't it really as a teenager as well when you might have been bullied at school absolutely yeah I I kind of had a, a tough time in secondary school which was something I suppose I wanted to write about um because it's such a common experience you know but I feel 
it's 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 not often written about um but sport was certainly a wonderful outlet for me at that time and even a, a kind of a release valve for any you know frustration or or sadness or or anger that you might feel um it's it's a great way to kind of expend that energy did you not get respected in school for being one of the sports stars because that's the way it would often happen in a boys school no, it, it was really strange. And I suppose I came from a, a small rural primary school where, you know, the ability to play hurling or camogie was was prized, you know, and I then kind of transitioned to a secondary school. And for me, I found that all the social rules kind of changed in a way, um, you know, no longer were were women kind of supposed to or young girls kind of supposed to take up space or or kind of take attention. It was more you sit back on the sidelines and and you let the boys kind of do their thing um and yeah it was it was strange that just the difference that i felt between maybe myself and my male counterparts you know we we take days off school to to go support the lads if they if they got to a final or something like that whereas on the camogie team you kind of had to like ask permission to to skip a class if you had to go play a match so uh, there was a, a strong contrast there I, I i think it might be changing now um this was back in the in the 2000s i hope it has progressed I, I hope it has progressed because i think there's so many girls and teenagers who are now playing both and i use the phrase because it's the official phrase ladies gaelic football and camogie uh, as many in many some clubs as there are actually boys doing so. And yet the issue that's come up in this programme previously is actually the availability of playing facilities as to who gets the pitch and when and who gets to use the clubhouse and the rest of it. But part of the problem seems to be that uh, maybe even the ownership of facilities is in the main, the men's clubs who feel like they're doing the girls and the women a favour by letting them out in the pitch or into the clubhouse. Absolutely, yeah, and it's it's so great to see the the uptake, I suppose, in in numbers for for the women's codes. But that that is an issue that that crops up again and again, and it is because the the pitches are owned by the GAA. They're in a lot of cases they're kind of legacy pitches, if you like. Um, they've been you know owned for decades, you know, long before uh, women had meaningful opportunities, I suppose, to play Gaelic games. Um, so now there's, I suppose, an issue where maybe there's twice the number of, of players in a community than there had been previously. Um, and then you have to sort out who gets precedence, you know, and, and how do you make those decisions? And I think I think on the at the grassroots, I think there's really good cooperation and really good sharing, certainly in the clubs that I've been involved in. Um, there was that 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 kind of splitting of the facilities if you like um but at intercounty level i think it can get very messy because um you know a lot of intercounty female teams don't have their own their own grounds if you like um and can have difficulty kind of securing pitches for for matches and for training i'm just even thinking in recent days we've been hearing an awful lot about the televising of men's championship hurling and football you wouldn't get that raw about the amount of time that the women's games are getting covered it's so true. Yeah, I think it's only since 2016, maybe, um, that there has been a broadening in the coverage of of women's, um, of the like camogie and ladies football latter end of the championships. I think previous to that, it was only the final that was ever shown live on television. Now I think there's maybe maybe six camogie matches shown uh, live on TV each year. Um, but yeah, it's 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 interesting. You know, it can it can be difficult being a fan of intercounty camogie because. It can be so hard to to find coverage of matches. You know, you'd be on Facebook looking for a stream, or um, on Twitter hoping that that some county PRO is is tweeting out the score lines. Um, 
So yeah, I think hurling fans are experiencing a, a bit of that now. Yeah, do you think that if there was more coverage that you would then get more people going to games or having more interest? Because I know the argument tends to be there's no point to putting it on because not enough people are interested. Is it a chicken and egg situation? Absolutely, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. But I think any time that women's sport is kind of uh, promoted and kind of put in front of an audience, I think there always is an uptake. Um, you know, I, the example that comes to mind for me is the, the 2019 Women's World Cup, you know, um, and Ireland weren't involved or anything like that. But it was it was the first time that I experienced even in work, you know, people around the water cooler just casually chatting about women's sports. And um, I think when when something is made available on TV, people can't help but get involved and kind of, you know, get, get involved in the drama and the rivalries and uh get to know the different players and I think that is really the way forward for women's sports is just making it more available to an audience and allowing them to kind of um, get involved and, and, and follow it. Yeah, how hopeful would you be that this year's World Cup in July and August in Australia will get even more attention given the involvement of the Irish team in it, although maybe it's unfortunate that the matches are going to be on at an hour which is not necessarily going to be the most suitable for TV audiences? Yeah, I think it'll be an absolute game changer. Um, I have two young nieces who play soccer and they're incredibly excited for it. And they have so many heroes on that Irish team. So, yeah, I think it's going to be huge a huge boost for women's sport across the board. Why do so many women give up as teenagers, do you think? I think there's probably a number of factors. But one thing that I definitely observed as a teenager myself um, is that there isn't as much of a social reward, I think, for girls um who are good at sports i think for for young men it's kind of seen as you know an enhancement to their masculinity maybe you know an enhancement to their image if they are these really good performers on on the pitch but i think for young women you're kind of being encouraged maybe to be more feminine and more refined and being a brilliant camogie player or a brilliant rugby player kind of doesn't quite gel with that sometimes um so i think the one thing that I think does keep girls in sport is if they have a big group of friends who are all playing and who kind of keep one another in the sport, if that makes sense, that kind of social aspect can definitely carry girls through. Um, but I definitely think if you can get girls through the, the difficult teen years um, and get them to college and they, they still are playing and still love their sport, um, you've got a, an adult player there, I think. Who can help most in that? Because I'm thinking a lot of teenagers reject their parents' advice, particularly when it comes to things like participating in sport. I mean, how much more, for example, do you think could the schools do in encouraging girls, both at primary level and then a secondary school level, to get involved in sports and stay involved? Or how much can the clubs actually do that? Yeah, I think it's really important um, that the schools kind of hold the, the the girls' teams in the same esteem and and make as, as much of a big deal about the, the success of girls' teams as they do for the boys. I think that's a, a really important point. Um, equally, I, I think things are getting better in the clubs and things like that because when I started playing uh, camogie back in the 90s, there were, I had no kind of elders, if that makes sense. There was no kind of generation above me that had been playing for years. I had no kind of role models. Whereas I think now every club has like, a senior camogie team who are there kind of as role models for, for young girls. Um, and I think that's that's really important as well. How important do you think might the role of corporate Ireland even have been in that certain sports are now been sponsored by 
companies which decide to use the female players as very much leading ambassadors for their brands? Hugely important as well, I think because it just provides visibility. Um, and I write in the book about, you know, my first time seeing, um, I think it was Breach Corkery on a on a billboard in Cork City. And I'd just never seen imagery like that of, of a female player growing up. And it was just, it was so un- inspiring. She was just kind of standing there with her arms folded. She wasn't smiling. I think she had <laughs> mud in her face. Um, but it was just such a powerful image. And I think, you know, if if working with Corporate Ireland kind of leads to, to more imagery and more kind of um, advertising like that, I think that's that's a really good thing. That was Eva Ryan, who released her memoir, The Grass Ceiling, and who we spoke to earlier in the year. Now, 2023 has been another dramatic year for golf. And in October, we were joined by Alan Shipnock, the journalist who first broke the story about the creation of Live Golf, the Saudi Arabian venture. His excellent book, Live and Let Die, looked at the turmoil that ensued from that move. So we began by asking Alan whether there is genuine interest in the Live Tour or if it's doomed to failure. It depends which public we're talking about. When, when they when they play in Florida and Arizona, where there's traditional, um, you know, s- strongholds for the PGA Tour, that doesn't it doesn't capture a lot of interest. But when Liv went to Australia, it was a huge success. They had thirty thousand fans a day. It dominated the national media coverage. When Liv went to Singapore, uh, same thing. Big crowds, a lot of attention. You know, they they've realized that they need to take the. Sh- go on the road and play internationally and go to markets that are starved for big time golf. And so the 2024 schedule is not final for live, but it's been leaked. And of the 14 events, um, only six in the U S that's a market departure. Like they've really, they're really leaning into colonizing these international events. So uh, yeah, if they went, if they went to Dublin or they went to Edinburgh, people probably wouldn't pay attention, but when, when they go to, to places where there's um, there's there's a, a, a built up pent up desire to watch professional golf, it can make an impact. But um, as a TV product, it's it's yet to find its audience. Um, you know, so yeah. You, but the question is, if if this framework agreement falls apart and the PIF is motivated to spend a lot more money acquiring players, if Live all of a sudden has two thirds of the top twenty players, and maybe people will pay attention. You know who knows that that's that's the unknown. If they really lean in and have a whole second wave of big signings, and that could happen if this this deal falls apart. It's most unlikely, though, isn't it, that Ireland's Rory McIlroy will be one of those who would ever sign for Live, having taken such a strong and public position against it. Just how badly did he feel let down by the sudden announcement of the discussion of a merger? You know, it was a tough lesson for Rory because he's an idealist and he thought he was fighting uh, for something larger than himself. And then the money guys came in and they are ruthless and they are cold blooded and they basically tore they tore open Rory's chest cavity and they tore out his heart and they stomped on it in soft spikes. And um, you could see how disillusioned and disenchanted he became for a good reason. He put he put himself on the line. I mean, he became the voice and the face of the PGA tour and what a lot of people thought were the forces of good in, in the game. And so um, I think, I think Roy's had to do a lot of soul searching uh, maybe long-term. This is the best thing for him as a golfer where this will, instead of trying to take on these battles, he will just withdraw from the, the governance and the politics of golf 
and he's just going to focus on himself and winning golf tournaments and no one would begrudge him that. Uh, so, no, it was a harsh lesson of how things work in the real world. You know, you bring in these, these Sharpies who have amassed fortunes um, by cutting deals and, and being completely focused on the bottom line. And um, they, they stomped all over Rory and, yeah, it was hard. It was hard to watch, but I think. Yeah, um, but how much? How much was it made worse from by the fact that these were Irish American guys in particular, fellas with names like Jimmy Dunn and Ed Hurley? Just how important were they to the merger discussions beginning, and just how strong had their connection to Rory McIlroy been previously? Oh, that 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 definitely was part of the shock of it because Jimmy Dunn is a close friend and confidant of Rory, and he he had guided him through. Uh, this controversy you know he was a a, a someone that, that rory leaned on for counsel and jimmy dunn and rory's father jerry are very close friends and it was it was jimmy dunn who got jerry mcelroy into seminole golf club which is one of the citadels of the sport extremely private basically reserved for just the ruling class and you know jerry's a former barman right like he does not fit the profile of the seminole member but it was because of jimmy dunn who's the president of the club and so that added to the sense of betrayal it was a close personal friend of the McElroys who, who who basically pulled the rug out from under them. And, you know, I'm sure Jimmy has had to do a lot of explaining behind the scenes that, you know, it was just business. It wasn't personal, but it felt very personal to Rory. There's no question. Of course, some people get very upset. And it seems that particularly a lot of those who went to live for the money have particularly thin skins about what they've done. Justin Thomas is amongst the first of those who's come out attacking you, saying he's sick of what Alan Shupnuck doing what he does and wanting you to bring positivity and good stories to help grow the game of golf, not to try and make money bashing guys earning zero trust with a lot of incorrect information. Well, I suppose he would say that, wouldn't he? Right, well, so... Justin's only gotten part of the information. That's the whole problem for the, the PJ Tour players. They've been spoon-fed by Jay Monahan and Jimmy Dunn and others, this very rosy view of how the future is going to play out. I'm much more realistic, which is that Yasir Al-Rumayan, who runs the PIF, he now runs professional golf if they can consummate this deal. The tour players don't want to hear that. And more generally, you know, to Justin's critique, I mean, we are we are in the midst of the most contentious period in the history of professional golf. And he just wants me out there singing Kumbaya and writing press releases for the tour. That's not my role. That's not my job. Like I'm here to cut through all the spin and all the BS and all the lies and tell golf fans and other stakeholders in the game, what is really happening. And that's what I try to do with this book is I didn't take the side of the tour or of live golf. No. I tried to be a, essentially a tour guide to these exceptionally complicated issues and these very contradictory, complex cast of characters and just tell golf fans what really happened because this whole story happened in the shadows. Every deal, every handshake, every betrayal, every time the money moved around, there was no press release. There was no press conference. It was all secret. And so it took an incredible amount of effort to find the, the truth and what really happened and and to find the heartbeat of this story. And so, you know, Justin just wants me to do PR, but he has people on his payroll for that. I'm not one of them. So I thought his critique was very enlightening. And the fact that he raised the issue of me making money by writing a book is hilarious because Justin Thomas will make more money finishing dead last in a no-cut elevated event with this bloated purse that's courtesy of Live Golf, essentially, 
um, that I'm going to make on this book. But these pros have become so voracious. They're so greedy. They want every dollar for themselves. And so I thought his statement was revealing on a lot of different levels. Well, to finish, Alan, it does bring back that old maximum that when somebody says it's all about the principle, not the money, it's really about the money, isn't it? And that's what your story is all about. It's all about people using the power of money to get what they want or abandoning their principles and morals to get as much money as they can from the other. Yeah, it's it's an interesting tale because it's really a golf book without a lot of golf. I mean, I do I do go deep recreating the the 2020 Open Championship when you know, it looked like Roy was going to win um, at St. Andrews. And that would have been a, a huge moment in his career and, and in this whole battle. And I do go inside the ropes at times, but this book's really, yeah, it's about money. It's about power. It's about politics. It's about these these large Shakespearean themes of, of betrayal and greed and vengeance um, and legacy and, and, and friendship and loyalty. And um, yeah, it's been a very revealing time uh, in, in golf about people's moral code, about what's really important to these governing bodies, to these the, the so-called leaders of the sport. And it's easy to be disillusioned. I, I do think, you know, Rory's one of the few people who's elevated himself through all this. But at the same time, he did become sort of the leading troll of the PGA Tour. And he took a lot of personal shots at a lot of guys on Live Golf and certainly Greg Norman. And he he himself kind of got sucked into the negativity. And he did have a moment of clarity, you know, coming out of the Masters where he said, this is just a silly little controversy that that's taken over my life. And I need more perspective. And I think that's, I think a lot of people lost perspective in this story, as, as you're saying that, um, you know, money is power and it came into the, into the, the world of professional golf in an unheard of way. And it altered a lot of, a, a lot of legacies. It shattered a lot of reputations. It changed a lot of lives. I mean, the, the corrosive power of money has never been more on display than, than throughout this battle. You've just been listening to our chat with Alan Shipnock, who spoke to us about the release of his book, Live and Let Die, the inside story of the war between the PGA Tour and Live Golf. And of course, other things have happened since then, such as the defection of John Ram, the Spanish golfer, to Live. But don't go anywhere now. Don't you defect from us, because after the break, we're going to be hearing from one of Ireland's greatest ever footballers, Liam Brady. The Last Word on Today FM with Matt Cooper. Welcome back to The Last Word here at Today FM where we're having a listen back at some of our favourite sports interviews from 2023. And our final interview of the day is with a former football pundit, manager, but most importantly, one of our greatest ever footballers, Liam Brady. When he came to studio, we talked about his career with the Republic of Ireland and I wanted to know if his debut for Ireland, a 3-0 win over Russia, was the best game he ever played in for Ireland. In a green short, most definitely, yeah. It set a high benchmark, didn't it? It did indeed, because we were up against one of the most powerful uh, teams in the world, probably. And the ironic thing now, they're, they're at war with Ukraine. Uh, but uh, many of the uh, the Soviet Union team that day were from Ukraine, including the European Footballer of the Year, blocking left winger and... Uh, we were up against a very powerful team with a lot of players to choose from, but uh, I think it was Johnny Giles's first competitive match for Ireland. I think he'd had maybe two or three friendlies on a South American tour before before that match came about. And uh, well, he was he was an excellent manager, and uh, 
we had some really, really good players and uh, we, we, t- we took them apart, Matt. You did. I remember it. I was a child. I remember watching it and it was just, the crowd was just so... But you write about it in the book as well. I mean, the Dennyman Park was pretty shambolic even then, wasn't it? For the facilities and everything. You remember the smell as much as anything else from the dressing rooms. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, I was used to playing in the first division. Uh, not by much. I'd been playing in the first division a few months, but at Arsenal, you've got marbled halls and marble tile dressing rooms. At Daily Mount, it was wood and chipped, at, you know, and, and uh, very small. And, uh, we're trying to get 16 players changed in there with the kit. Kit man trying to give you a rub or, you know, and Johnny and his, his assistant, Alan Kelly. Uh, it was pretty crowded. And then on top of that, you know, you had the bar next door and you could smell the porter and you could smell the urine coming from the toilets not very far away. It wasn't the most salubrious uh, place in the world. But it was great. That day was great. There's two other games I particularly I want to ask you about because I was at both of them towards the end of your Republic of Ireland career with Jack Charlton. And one of them was the day that you got sent off against Bulgaria, 2-0 win in Lansdowne Road, which actually was key to us getting to the Euro 88. Was that again one of your best games for Ireland? It was, yeah. It absolutely was, yeah. And uh, you don't often get a standing ovation when you get sent off. But I, I, <laughs> I was I part did, of it. I did, and Jack was very complimentary. You know, I don't know whether he... He was thinking already, planning ahead. That he's out suspended. of my hair now. <laughs> it could have been that, but he If I remember rightly, did he actually walk onto the pitch and put his arm around yeah, your shoulder did, and bring yeah, you Yeah, he did, yeah. And it was a really good win. I think Paul Paul scored a goal and might have been Kevin Moran. I think it might have been two defenders scored. Yeah. Certainly Paul got one of them because um, Paul was playing in midfield with me. Yeah. Paul played alongside me in midfield. What a player to have alongside you in midfield. Um, you know, powerhouse, uh, great at getting the ball back for you, shielding the shielding the back four, great in the air. Um, and it was a terrific team performance. We only lost one match in eight on that campaign, and that was away to Bulgaria, and that was in dubious circumstances. Um, it wasn't easy to go to Sofia and get a win or get even a draw. Um, so uh, Scotland had to go to Bulgaria the game after that, and... Uh, Bulgaria only needed a point, so I'd kind of thought, well, that's it. I've got a four-match ban. Jack didn't really fancy the way I played football, so I'm probably thinking that's probably it. I'm 32 maybe then, coming up for 32. A lot of good midfield players around, Andy Townsend, Ronnie Whelan, Kevin Sheedy, uh, really, really good players, and... uh, but well, lo and behold, they go and uh, they go and beat uh, Bulgaria, and we qualify. But I got injured. I got a ban. I got it reduced by two to from four to two. I thought I might be able to go, and within a week or two of finding out that I could actually be in the squad, um, I uh, ruptured my crucial ligament. So that was that was the end of ever playing for Ireland at a major championships. And the other game I remember was in 89, I was in Lansdowne Road as well, when the game against West Germany. And I was among the fans who were absolutely furious when Jack Charlton decided to remove you before half time, which I thought was an awful thing to do. I remember arguing with people around me, we're not going to see Liam Brady playing in Ireland jersey again because of this. 
Well, uh, yeah, I don't know what Jack was up to that day. Uh, I was very surprised to play because I played against Hull City on the Saturday and uh, Morris Setters was at the match and I was absolutely terrible for West Ham. I was still getting back to fitness, you know, yeah. my back was sore after, after you know, uh, coming back and, you know, I just wasn't right physically. But happy to go home and be in the squad, you know, maybe get, 10 or 15 minutes against West Germany, I think. Were they world champions at the time? They might have been. Um, no, because no, Argentina won in Argen- Yeah, okay. And then they, won, they, they, won they won in it. They won it in Italian 90, yeah. didn't they? They had a great team. I, I wasn't expecting to play, and Jack picks me. Oh, I don't know what was going on, Matt, you know, whether he had a... Um, I'll show this Irish public that this, this guy can't do it for me anymore. Which I, it was the only time I really fell out with Jack, you know. And we had a bit of a, a shouting match in the dressing room. Uh, and every we, the lads had to play second half, so it was quieting down. I went in the shower and I decided that was it, you know. Came out and I said, that was it. Um, that was my last game for Ireland. Did you ever regret that? He might have brought you to the World Cup in 1990. No chance. But he... No chance whatsoever. <laughs> but didn't he then turn around and say it during one stage, you would have been handy to have off the bench in the hot temperatures out in Italy? He did after the Egypt game, you know, yeah. when we struggled to get a goal. Well, we struggled to get many goals. And how many goals did we score in Italian 90? Two? Two, I think. Was yeah. it? No, maybe one, was it? No, we scored against England, England Kevin, yeah, Sheedy's Kevin Sheedy scored, and Niall Quinn's goal yeah, against so the Netherlands. So we scored two, yeah. yeah. So we scored two. So he said to me, because I used to go back to the, to the hotel they were staying at yeah. to have a drink with the lads, you know. I was working for the BBC. That was my big break in punditry. And uh, we used to go back to the, I used to go back to the bar to have a drink with the lads. And he saw me and he said, uh, he said I could have done with you tonight. <laughs> And then he realised what he'd said to me and he said, if if it was three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Go back though, you know, people have been sort of given out recently about the performances of the Irish team and we were drawing a comparison with the Greek performance with Denmark in 85 at the end of the own hand regime. But that team you played in for the 82 World Cup and didn't qualify out of a group that had Belgium, France and the Netherlands in it. Just how good was that Irish team? It was really good, you know, and Owen did a really good job. Um, we very nearly qualified. Uh, two of the games we were robbed, honestly. I, I, I have no issue at all with VAR. Uh, I know it's a very contentious subject, whether it's good for the game or not. But some of the things that were going on then, Matt, was were quite incredible. Corrupt, it looked like. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Whether it was FIFA or the association itself. Bribing referees, we'd have to assume. Yeah, because well, FIFA, there's a lot of proof of that happening in the 70s and it carried on in yeah, the 80s. Yeah, and, and Belgium in particular, I think. Yeah. I think there was a there was a UEFA Cup that Anderlecht won that it was they were stripped of in the in the mid mid fifth uh, in mid 80s. But um, no, uh, there was two games: Belgium uh, away, Frank Staple and scored a really good goal from. I clipped a, 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 a quick free kick. We had a good understanding, really good understanding. Frank and I. He got to the near post and knocked it in, uh, and I score. Uh, he scored from a cross uh, in Paris that that would have made it one-one, and that was disallowed. And I've watched it on video now. I actually crossed the ball backwards. And Frank is behind me, and the lineman put the linesman put his flag up. So 
in those days, I think FIFA wanted the likes of France. They didn't want Ireland at the World Cup because France brought wealth, sponsorships, all these kind of things. All these kind of things were going on. In the case of Belgium, I think they were looking after the referee. And then you go forward to 2009 when you're an assistant to Giovanni Trapattoni and the infamous hand of Thierry Henry, if VAR had been around for that. Absolutely, we, the decision would have, been, would have been changed. I'm not too sure the referee was bent that night. I think he just might have missed it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but, you know, if, VR, if VAR had been around, uh, the goal wouldn't have stood. Now, I remember when you left Arsenal to go to Italy, I remember stuff in the English media at the time was, my God, what a challenge for a man to go to a foreign country. Totally ignoring the fact that you had gone to a foreign country at the end of 15. But what about the making of you? I mean, it was a big decision to make, but just as a lifestyle decision and a professional decision, how important did that turn out to be? Oh, it was great for me, you know, great for me uh, in, in in as much as I, I, I wanted to win a league and I wanted to play for a really big club. Arsenal were a really big club, but they didn't have the ambition to go and win the league then. We, 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 had, we had the nucleus of a really great side, mainly Irish lads, and, uh, uh, but the board didn't really want to invest in, 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 in top players to, to bolster our squad and really have a go at winning the league. And that came across loud and clear. Plus, they, they hadn't really looked after me financially uh, because I think when you're a, a player that grown up at a club, you didn't really get looked after. So You had to be a big name acquisition. Yeah, well, let's it? say, you know, Malcolm McDonald came in and earned much, much more than a lot of the lads in the dressing room. And then Brian Talbot did as well. And, uh, you know, we were saying, what about us? You know, uh, and there was kind of an attitude. Oh, well, didn't we look after you by bringing you up type of thing? You know, so uh, things began to change in football. Then Kevin Keegan had gone to... Hamburg in Germany, wasn't it? Hamburg and Tony Woodcock had gone to Cologne and that got me thinking, oh, I'd like to go abroad. And uh, I got married in uh, 1980 uh, to Sarah and um, uh, we decided we were going to go abroad. I thought it was going to be Bayern Munich. That was my agent telling me that Bayern Munich. I met Uli Honus a few months before my contract expired. He told me it was all on and then... <clears throat> it fell through because I subsequently found this out from Karl-Heinz Rummenigger, who was playing for Inter Milan with him. He said to me, I remember when there was talk that you were going to come, but Breitner, Paul Breitner, the full back, said, I want to play in midfield and uh, I want to be uh, the main man in midfield and, and Bayern Munich uh, just forgot about me. Uh, but luckily the Italians had opened up the their country to foreign players again and uh, I got a move to Juventus. I don't think I was top of the list for Juventus. I think I might have been three or four down it. Uh, but it suited you, didn't it? Look at the players you played with. Marco Tardelli, Cabrini, Gentile, Dino Zoff, all these lads who were that brilliant 82 team that won the World Cup. Perhaps a little bit overlooked because of the love people had for the Brazilian team that they beat. Yeah, they were great players and real winners, great winning mentality. And I remember saying to the captain, we were we were third in the league. I said, did we get anything for finishing third or second? Because you did at Arsenal as a bonus. And he said, no, not here. Not here, Liam. You have to win here. 
How much fun was it doing the book with Larry Ryan? It was great, yeah, it was great. Um, I started it in lockdown. Uh, I started to prepare for it and because there was nothing else to do, so I rang people, I rang friends, I rang Kevin Keegan, I rang Tony Woodcock, why did you leave Liverpool, why did you leave Nottingham Forest? I was getting all this kind of things in my head. Then I would ring players who I played with for Ireland and, you know, and they 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 told me things that I they weren't in my memory and of yeah. course they were very, very useful. So it was a it was a trip down memory lane. It was but quite do nostalgic. Do you remember lots of the things that happened on the pitch? Do you still have a good recall and memory of the matches? I'd be one of the better ones at that. You know, some some players you ask, I said, remember that game we played? They so no, what happened in that match? And I could tell them. But the best for that is Johnny Giles. He can remember absolutely everything. And so that's it from the last word here in Today FM. Thank you for listening to the show this week and indeed throughout the year. We're going to be back next week from Tuesday, the 2nd of January at half past four. Full last word for a very, very exciting year ahead of us, particularly with all of the elections that we're facing. Going to be a big year for politics and lots of other things as well. So until we talk to you next week, enjoy the weekend celebrations and have a very happy new year.